Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, I welcome back to the show Dr. Kai Whiting, the co-author of Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living in. Kai is a researcher and lecturer in sustainability and stoicism. His main research interests are how to better account for resource use and the practical application of Stoic philosophy to the challenges of the 21st century. In the conversation, Kai and I discuss the meaning of sustainability and why it matters, the connection between wisdom and thinking sustainably, why we need to change our language around sustainability, what Stoicism can teach us about changing the world, and much more. You can learn more about Kai's work in the world at stoickai.com. Also, if you're interested in philosophical mentoring from Kai, these are one-on-one conversations. You can sign up at thewalledgarden.com slash mentoring. Lastly, if you're interested in learning more about sustainability and stoicism, I encourage you to check out some of Kai's recent academic articles. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can find those. Just one quick announcement before we bring on our guest. I recently started a new joint venture with my good friend Brandon Tumblin from the Strong Stoic Podcast. It's called Paradoxically Speaking. It's a Substack publication and podcast exploring human nature, paradoxes, and the art of living. We've released a few episodes already, so I encourage you to check it out and subscribe on Substack. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Kai Whiting. I'm glad that you took the time to to come on because it's a topic that I've wanted to explore here, which is sustainability. It seems to me like it's connected with with wisdom in in many ways. So maybe if we could talk about the wisdom of sustainability, but we'll we'll keep it from a very basic beginner's point of view. And I, I guess to start, could you share with the listeners a bit of your background in sustainability? Maybe how it all got started. Yeah. So my background, my academic background, is environmental engineering. And then I have another thing that I'm actually more known for, and that's Stoicism. And that started because I wrote with some co-authors a paper on Stoicism and sustainability. And in 2018, I spoke at Stoicom, which is like the main academic kind of Stoic conference. And I spoke about sustainability and Stoicism there. And I made the argument that to be unsustainable was a lack of virtue, right? Because I I think it's very ignorant or unwise to believe, for example, in infinite growth on a finite planet. So uh, my background is like thermodynamics. I'm like, well, there are physical limitations. Thermodynamics is all about that. I won't necessarily go right into that. But the idea in economics is that there is like almost infinite growth. We can just be more technologically advanced. So you've got something like Malthus. He was saying that we're going to starve to death. 
because there's not enough food. And he said, you know, and he didn't take into consideration that we'd have technological developments because based on his knowledge at the time, he would just say that a growing population was going to make a lot of people starve. And that is actually a reasonable assumption from where he was standing in that period of time when technological advancements were few and far between. So we're talking pre-Industrial Revolution, sort of 1850 time. is like the Industrial Revolution really kicked off. We're talking before that. People often forget he doesn't talk about that people should have less kids. He says poor people should have less kids. So people like to, in the environmental field like to talk about him. and like, we need to be careful because he doesn't quite say it like that. He was a, he was a minister, a Christian preacher, and he was concerned about poor people not being able to afford uh, their food. So he had to be very careful with nuance. I also said, to, you know, in the environmental uh, space, it often takes what you might be being bold. It's not necessarily courage because for the Stoics, like it's only the sage that is truly courageous and the wisest person. But it's bold sometimes to say to people, I don't actually eat meat unless I know where that meat comes from. Or I have actually reduced my meat intake because I don't think it's good for the planet. And you get a lot of stick for that. I also get a lot of stick from vegans who tell me, we should be vegan. I'm like, well, it depends, right? It depends about health issues. It depends on where you live. If you're a Pacific Islander, maybe veganism isn't the best thing that you can be. So it's a, it's also saying, okay, there is a, you know, we need to do something that's approaching courage sometimes to stand up for a principle. And I often say to people, a principle isn't a principle until it costs you. And so in sustainability, we have precautionary principle, the idea that we should uh, be cautious in what we do and how we think. And thinking, for example, that all technology is good and that innovation is good. And I keep saying innovation is just innovation. Some innovations are not very good at all. <laughs> and we can all think of examples like we might point out that the atomic bomb was an innovation. I'm not entirely sure how good in the generic sense of the word we could say that was. I mean, I'm sure Christopher Nolan will give us more information in his, in his next film. But, I, I, you know, I'm on the fence there. There's definitely elements of that which was useful. I wouldn't say necessarily overall inventing the atomic bomb was a quote unquote good innovation. So the idea that we have to think about these things, temperance, the environmental environmentalism per se talks a lot about temperance but sometimes i see these activists they don't act in a very temperate manner they're screaming they're shouting they're throwing stuff um they're blocking roads i'm like well temperance isn't just about what we choose to eat and what we choose to dress and i've dressing and i've talked about that in the stoic context in a few academic papers it's all how so how we approach people so i've always said to people we did this for the london stoics if you want to encourage someone to be a vegetarian, buy them a vegetarian meal. <laughs> Telling somebody what to do and how to do it is probably not the best or most appropriate response to that problem. And I find that most people who eat meat do like pizza. And there's a lot of vegetarian pizzas you can give someone. Oh, they like curries, particularly in the UK, which is one of our favourite meals as a nation. So a lot of curries happen to be vegetarian. So when I went with the London Stoics, we actually went to a Hare Krishna place, so that would make it very vegetarian for religious reasons, and people really enjoyed it. I'm like, that's how you make people eat in a vegetarian meal. Pay for it. <laughs> so, so the idea is like thinking about things. And so I made this argument about stoicism and sustainability, but I want to stress that environmentalism and sustainability aren't the same thing. So sustainability looks at three components, the social aspect, the economic aspect, and the environmental aspect. Environmentalism is only restrictive, generally speaking, to the environmental concerns primarily. Whereas sustainability is trying to, it's like a Venn diagram and trying to balance those three things. 
So for me, that's I think that's the argument I first came to Stoism for. And like, because I found as an environmental engineer, we look at global issues. And I felt Stoicism historically in the ancient period wasn't just about how to be a better individual, but how to be a better, better individual in your community to face communal public challenges. And I would say that the environmental challenges, I wouldn't say it's an environmental crisis because that's a judgment. The environmental challenges that we have are very significant and something that we should contemplate very carefully with the precautionary principle. Uh, the sage, the wise stoic is cautious. They're not fearful. They are cautious. So I think it is, you know, quite stoic to, or I would say stoic to be considerate towards the environment in the sense that this is where we live. This is what, we, what God, you know, if you use the traditional stoic or the ancient stoic would say, God being nature is important, is sacred, and that's what God has given us. Well, I greatly appreciate some some background and and some of your thoughts. That's a, that's a great intro. Maybe if we could start at a basic level there of what is sustainability, and you talked about it in these it's three different areas. Could you unpack those a bit and, and repeat those if you would? Of course. So sustainability, again, is not necessarily restricted to environmentalism. It can be because some people tend to use them both, but it's looking at three components in our society and even in our individual walk. So our social aspect or communal aspect sort of might be looking at, if we're not at stake, we might be looking at rights. For stake, we might be looking at obligations. Um, the economic, like, okay, is this financially viable? And financially viable is not linked to the idea of infinite growth or that all economic uh, growth or all profit is reasonable, right? And again, this is a stoic concept. Like if you are selling your soul to the devil, so to speak, a Christian would understand that maybe I shouldn't make as much money as I physically can, right? And so it would say, maybe I should look at my character and how I make money. Making money in stoicism is neither good nor bad. It depends on how you're making it, what you're doing with it. And then you've got the purely environmental aspect, like we're talking, what I would say, the land, the sea, the air, the bit that's not necessarily linked to what I would say call human society or the majority uh, human aspect of society. Because I wouldn't say human society is in a vacuum, right? People seem to think often where they're completely separated. It's not a strong boundary. It is like fluid there. You know, you, I give the example in the Circus of Concern in Stoicism that we start with the self, we go out to the family, we go out to friends. We go out to the general community, we go out to the whole humanity, and then Leonidas can stand across and I and a few others introduce the environmental circle. So people think all animals are in the environmental circle. I'm like, well, if you have a dog, that dog becomes fan-based. So it's not like it's a concrete barrier between those three. It's having, you know, having your mind in the game to go, these are the three things they're going to push and they're going to pull these tension points. So what might you consider if you're looking at those three things? Well, it depends on the scale, right? It depends on the scale of what you're doing. But let's imagine you're a company, because that's probably people would be able to grasp that. On some level, being a company, even if you're a non-profit, you have to make money. That's what a company is born to do. And when you don't do that, it doesn't make sense. Being a charity, you make money, but you don't make profit, so to speak, because you invest it back into your various activities. But you're still there. Your primary reason to open up a company is to make money. However, if you were going to make money by continuously bringing in temporary contracted people um, 
if you were going to undermine their wages, you were going to promise that they were going to earn $20,000 a year, then you paid them twelve. You might say, well, that's not very considerate, right? It's not only about the money. It's not about maximizing revenue or profit, depending on which company you're running. It's making money, but not at the sacrifice of upsetting all the staff. And I think since the 1980s in the US particularly, we kind of lost sight of that because when we lose money, the first thing that people tend to do is to shrink shrink the work, you know, the people who are working, the labor they have. And they say, well, we don't need as many hours. We don't need as many people. And I think perhaps the best thing to do is to consider what have we got? These are people. Can we, you know, as an organization, maybe we do tighten about maybe everybody in the organization from the top to the bottom is a little bit less, particularly the top. Maybe we can go forward. Maybe we can come together as a community. And we have found that in like, you know, the pandemic that now people are really struggling to recruit staff in the airports because they just stripped there as much as possible and said, well, now we haven't got any staff and now there's maybe loads of queues. And like, maybe we shouldn't dial back, particularly as the governments in the US and the UK did actually pay money to allow that those staff to continue. So you're looking at those aspects, but you're also looking at, you know, your social aspects in the community. And I, I think actually, uh, American football teams do this really, really well. Like they don't when they go to, to do like Thanksgiving games. It's not only about Thanksgiving. They also think about how can we in the local community provide you know such and such many turkeys, potatoes, vegetables. How can we have something for a crucial catch, which is about cancer, for example? And they highlight, you know, even highlighted breast cancer, which in American football until very recently wasn't really played out with women. I know that is changing in the US. So that's something that the, the the NFL does understand. I'm not saying the NFL is a perfect example of social considerations and concerns. We all know that there's some issues there. But they have, you know, in my view, stepped up, you know, in that type of sense. They're going, okay, how can we raise awareness, you know, for cancer? How can we raise awareness about people not having, uh, you know, Thanksgiving the way they'd want to? And the last layer is like, you know, the environment. Like, we all have to live in the environment. We And we all need, I would say, reasonable air to breathe, uh, drinkable water. And we need to give space to wildlife. You know, you might not say that animals have intrinsic value. That's a fair enough argument. And I'd say humans don't have either. And that's a stoic point of view. But you'd say, do we want a, a, a world where, you know, our grandchildren do not know what an elephant is? Is that something? Do they just want, I've got an elephant here, Lego elephant. Do we just want to say, I used to know what this elephant looked like. This is what, I seen, what an elephant used to look like. I've seen them and you haven't because we didn't take uh, consideration. We weren't stewards if I was going to use the, the Islamic or Christian sense of that word. So you have to think about, okay, what is it that my company is doing? You know, are we using our resources well? Are we polluting? Can we reduce that pollution? Is it necessary? Can we change the mechanisms? You know, do we have to force our staff, for example, to drive many, many miles to get to work? Can we have a four-day work week? Because then we reduce the amount of, you know, fuels being burned by them, dri- you know, driving and then parking. And then if you're in LA, being in a standstill. <laughs> like, so you have sort of like looking at the environmental concerns. And obviously, if you think about a, a program where you have a four-day in-office work week, you also got the social issues there. Because you might say, well, that makes it easier for our members that have children to at least have, you know, make it easier for them. They finish their work quicker. That's probably an hour cheaper for them of childcare and considering that. And they say, okay, well, but what is the economic uh, aspect of that? People might often say, oh, you know, people aren't as productive. And it's like, well, 
Some people might not be, and they might have to be in the office five days a week, but some people might be more productive. You might also save money on not having to rent out a car park, right? I think you call it a parking lot. So then you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to do that because they're not all coming in now. So these are like the tension points. And there really is like no correct answer. It's not an absolute thing. It depends on context. I've just given an example that there may be individuals who are just particularly lazy at home, in which case you might say they do need to come in and work. You might find people don't want to work from home because they find it better to work in the office. So it's kind of like balancing that out. You've got the financial needs, which at the moment it's been skewed to shareholders, as in financial shareholders. And I think sustainability says, okay, of course you have to have some shareholders because they do provide capital, but should they be the only group of people we should consider? And in the US, there is more pressure to have like more sort of quote unquote greener kind of ways of doing business and that shareholders are putting pressure in the US for companies that are particularly polluting. So it's, it's looking at those issues. I'd love to have this conversation as a, as a way to raise my, my own awareness, but also the listeners on maybe some of the individual choices that we make. Um, reading through uh, some, some articles that you sent me, things like clothing choices, food choices, and things like that are easily within our control to, to make this choice or that choice. And I'll tell you something I, I heard on, on TV, which I think really led me to, to reach out to you and, and finally set up a time to have this conversation. I heard someone on TV say that um, when they're traveling, their their gym clothes, the clothes that they work out in and get sweaty and stuff like that, instead of packing them and bringing them home, they just throw them away. I was watching another show, heard somebody talking about, you know, only wearing something one time. And I think from sustainability and clothing and things like that, I I can speak personally, not super familiar and aware of why that is is such a concern. Could you maybe as a way to open up in terms of that, why why is this such an issue and and maybe those examples that I brought up uh, a problem? I think because people... People often think that uh, we should we say things like "I'm going to throw this away." And that's a tip. I don't know. In the US, you have that expression as well. We have that a lot in the UK. Like, "I'm going to throw these clothes away." And I often ask people, "Where is away? Where are you throwing them away from?" I mean, you're throwing them away from yourself, but there is really no away. They don't disappear overnight. Sometimes they don't disappear at all, but depending on how you manage the waste system, so. These kind of language to say, I'm going to throw something away. When you challenge people on that, they don't even know what away means. They think that it'll just disappear and it's you know, out of sight, out of mind. And in, you know, from the Stoics, there's no such thing as out of sight, out of mind. Because you, you, you know, you, you've got this, you've got nature and, and, and ver- you know, you're trying to create a character where, you know, you are concerned about the people in your community. So if you throw something away from you, you're just passing that problem to somebody else. And you're calling Stoicism to recognize that fact that that particular line is actually illogical. It's not like you're in a, a rocket ship and you can open a window and just throw it away in space and it will just go somewhere and you'll never, ever get there again. So it's like trying to change our language, I would say, first, Joshua, like going, 
What does that away mean? Outside, out of mind. Is it really outside, out of mind if then that, those clothes break down and the dyes within those clothes or the plastic contained within the polyester of what we're wearing then pollutes our rivers, then pollutes our, you know, our seas. And then if we eat fish, the fish eat, <laughs> eat those plastic and then we eat it. So we threw it away. It was outside our mind, but then we digested it. And a lot of people don't understand that. They don't understand there is like this, there is a feedback mechanism, everything we do. So people said to me like things like, well, it's out of my control. I can't do anything. So, but if you're the one who's throwing away a straw, it might be your straw that goes up the nose of the, the turtle that was very famous in the Planet Earth documentary. It might have been your straw. And I was saying, thinking to myself the other day, like I, I think you call it like chip packets or something. We call it crisp packets. I think if I just measured my impact on Earth by the amount of crisp packets that I've, or you call I think potato chips, right? Packets that I've thrown away. That kind of almost haunts me, right? Because I think that well, they didn't go away. They didn't disappear. They didn't disintegrate. They're in a hole somewhere, or they've been burnt somewhere. So I've either you know I've either contributed to the carbon emissions. I've contributed to some pollution potentially somewhere. So I think changing language and changing our mindset is important. So the idea of like having one item of clothing and throwing it away, when you realise there is no away, it makes you rethink. And it's not the clothes that are disintegrated to the point in that particular case. It's your attitude about being dirty and that washing your clothes somehow wouldn't cleanse those clothes right that's a misunderstanding but i'm i suppose it's because the clothes are produced so cheaply that they feel that it's better to just replace them but i would argue how clean are your clothes that are new anyway what if they're that cheaply made what kind of factory in la because it's not just in india that they're made in la where is that produced how clean is that factory Right. Because your expectations when you see that T-shirt is that's what new constitutes. But if you went to those factories and I have seen photographs of them, they are not the cleanest of places. So, again, if we realize that even brown new isn't necessarily that clean, we start to be less worried about once we wear it to, to wash it. So it's kind of highlighting to people the connection that they have that although there are some things out of their control, the very clothes that they choose to wear is a choice that they made if they're adults, right? And they are in a financial position to make a choice because there are adults that aren't. That is their choice. And that talks about our values. So, so today, funnily enough, I'm wearing a, you know, a Newcastle United um, top. What does that say? That talks about where, you know, something linked to my identity, right? So we make choices. We make choices. Also tells you that where I'm sitting is, it's not a very warm place, <laughs> quite a warm job it it tells us about ourselves and then our choice about how we wear those clothes what clothes we choose to wear what we choose to pay and how we feel about it when we quote unquote dispose of them or feel that we do that says something about us that says something about our character and i think most people would be horrified if they understood the reality of of where you know these clothes are going Uh, another thing that people don't understand is like okay when i give clothes second hand that sounds like a really nice thing and in many ways it is but it does actually cripple the clothes production in those areas say of africa because it's cheaper to get second hand clothes from europe particularly europe than it is to produce it in africa so if we have this excess of clothing we seem to think okay i'm not going to throw it away 
I will give it to charity and those charities will send to Africa. And if it's not sent to Africa for free, people, I mean, who's going who's gonna to take all those tons of clothes or put it on a boat and not charge? People charge for that. It's just they charge a less amount. But then that undermines the the clothing industry in those areas. So there's women who can't find work because it's just cheaper to buy a secondhand uh, branded, I won't mention a particular brand, but a branded piece of clothing. And people don't realise that. They seem to think that charity means that we give our clothes to poor people in Africa. That's generally the mindset that I've come across for free. Mm. The people who need the clothes the most can't afford to buy them. So it's also trying to change, I would say just that's about challenging people about their notions and their conceptions and preconceptions. I appreciate what you said. There's no such thing as out of sight, out of mind. For those of this that are not necessarily familiar, you talked about some clothing items may, you know, never go away. What, and you know, you talked about the donation and, and things and the problems that, that can arise from that. But what are the, what actually are some potential options that happen when we go and, you know, throw away old clothes? Where do they go? What, 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 what happens? Oh, they can often, I mean, sometimes it's, it depends on what the item of clothing is, right? So like the inside of shoes tends to get uh, used you know, to actually help us with car seats. So car seats, if you think about when you're sitting in a car, that's actually used material a lot. So sometimes it is absolutely used for what is useful, right? People think that car seats are often really nice inside. And they didn't start off that way. So it depends on what it is, right? It depends on the, the, the brand. If it's branded and it's a high-value brand, I mean, you can probably sell it on like an eBay or something, right? And actually, uh, I have seen people do it where they buy baby clothes that are branded and sell them on eBay, like, and they'll get their money back because they'll say, because they're branded people more willing to pay more. So they say that's better than buying a non-branded and getting nothing for it. Mm-hmm. So it, it depends on the item. Um, it depends on the cost of the item new. Let's assume that the clothes are not branded and people don't really want them. As I said, they can, they can be... Uh, rescued and used in other processes they might just be burnt in which case you're you know you're just contributing to carbon emissions uh they might just be put into landfill now when i say not disappear is that people think the thing that eventually with landfill everything just goes into a nice bit of earth and it'd be nice like compostable kind of agricultural eventually no we just get layers we'll get layers of waste basically and i do think that geologically in a few you know if we're still alive in a few thousand years time we're going to look at those layers and go wow look at the amount of plastic and look at that look at the amount of it because now you know we have coal for example and it's compressed and i'm thinking oh, back in you know in the future we're going to start to you know if we go long enough into the future we're going to have these compressed sort of waste areas it depends on how well the landfill is is regulated and managed like sometimes you can actually dig up dig a hole and see that the newspaper from 1972 is still telling you the day it's dry. There's not been a lot of uh, circulation of what they call leachate, which is a chemical uh, liquid that they tend to pump around to try and decompose stuff. You also then have gas issues because as it decomposes, then you release gas and you have to then, or you don't, you get build up of gas and you have to release it. Uh, sometimes you can use that. Sometimes they just burn it off. And so with my students, when I ask them, you know, what do you do to change the world? And they give me all sorts of ideas. And I tend, tend to say to them, why don't you just not buy crap you don't need? 
you know, um, and this goes back to, you know, our view of money. Like when you hand over five dollars, five pounds, five euros, what you're saying is I value whatever that is, whatever you're buying more than I value five euros, five dollars or five pounds in my pocket. That is literally all that when we talk about money out the outside, aside from being metal or a number on screen, it's, it's a measure of value. So if you measure some, if you value something more than you value five dollars, that's what you're saying when you 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 involve yourself in that transaction. And you might say that t-shirt's worth five dollars to me, and you would give over five dollars. But if I charge you seventy five dollars, you might say, hmm, that t-shirt's not worth seventy five dollars to me. So it's kind of I've kind of to get people to think about clothing or food or items in general. It's like think of money as a value. Do you value that more than the value of the money in your pocket? And if you're going to throw it away after one use, what does that say about your value system? What does that say about your character? Because I think the answer when we want people to care more about the environment is to get them to care more about themselves. If you don't look after your your money and you value the effort that you put into your working day, assuming you work and you're not, I don't know, uh, selling <laughs> selling Airbnb weeks, then if you value that, you're going to value your, your money more. If you value your money more, you're less likely to quote unquote waste it, and you're less likely to accumulate stuff because we actually don't have a throwaway culture. In my engineering work, we've shown like quantitatively, we have an accumulating culture. We don't throw a lot of stuff away. We just buy a lot of stuff we don't use, mm. and we accumulate. And it makes sense, like historically. The more, the more things you've had in your house, the more you had wealth, right? And ever since that, we've, we've stayed put so you, you don't have the economic inequalities, actually. If you have a tribe that's, that moves, that's nomadic, basically the entire tribe uh, status, yes, you do have sort of age and you do have like things like knowledge, but in terms of wealth, everybody's equal. But as we stay put, we began to accumulate and historically, not so much in Europe now, it was about, I need to accumulate more and more stuff. In fact, the very wealthy in the US, I'm like, I don't even have to accumulate stuff anymore. I have to accumulate NFTs. <laughs> it's the status of having something to, to show to others, this is what I have, or the concern that you might not have enough. So you have a, like a scarcity mindset and like, I need more. I need six t-shirts instead of, or let's say 60 t-shirts instead of 10, because I might one day not have enough t-shirts. So it's kind of like either status driven or scarcity driven. And I think if you can like tackle that and go, do I have 60 t-shirts because of scarcity mindset? Like I'm worried that I won't have enough t-shirts at the end of the week. Or is it that I like to have status and that, that it's important to me? And then you can question why is having that particular brand useful? And there is an argument by Rob Henderson that the, the certain people on the left who are in the middle class, where they have luxury beliefs now, because Whereas you used to wear a Rolex and you used to have like luxury brands, now they're like having more quote unquote progressive values because that's in vogue at the moment. It's not in vogue to be a middle class 20 year old with middle class parents and a university degree and have 60 Nike pairs of trainers, which is what used to happen. Now it's, it's in vogue to be, well, look at my values and look at my virtues thing, basically. So as a human being, like, we have to think about if we want to save the environment, if we want to be sustainable, it starts with our value system. It starts with who we think we are, and that includes me, uh, when we buy something. So why did I buy this? Because I'm in the locality and that's important to me. 
right? And that for me, when I walk around and I don't have the local accent, people go, oh, but you're one of us. <laughs> you're one of us because you're wearing that particular shield on your chest or, you know, I'm like, well, well yeah. <laughs> that, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to fit in and I couldn't fit in my accent. My accent is about as far from this locality as it could be. So that was something I wanted to do to, to show solidarity and that I was willing to fit in. And that's actually made my life a hundred times more easier than other people who come from my region and come here and they're going, oh, I've really struggled. I'm like, have you bought a Newcastle t-shirt? <laughs> it's like, nope. <laughs> like, I have a Newcastle clock in my kitchen. And so when people come in, like engineers come in or people, they're like, oh, wow, you're one of us. So it's really helped. And that was, that was a conscious decision to, 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 to integrate in the locality. So if we make conscious decisions, and they do show like, uh, just with clothes, if your clothes are named or linked to you in any way, so you're not likely, if you're, let's say you're a Jets fan, so New York Jets fan, you're not likely to throw away your Jets shirt. You might give it to your kid, you might give it to your brother, but you're very unlikely to throw that away. The idea of throwing a Jets <laughs> shirt away, unless it's completely like, you know, destroyed because you've used it so much, is so horrendous to people, they wouldn't do it. So they say that once you your clothes mean something to you, so it's got your name on the back, or it means something to you because it's your sports team, or it was your your, your alumni. Like people wouldn't really throw away their university, you know, a t-shirt with a university on because it means to them that they're throwing away that memory. So I don't know which college is your alumni, but I would say you'd struggle more to throw a t-shirt that said about you being, you know, part of that school than just the random t-shirt that you didn't really care about. And that's what they're saying. Like, if we want to save the environment, we really have to think about what did, what are we expressing when we wear those wear those those clothes or buy that food or buy that, you know, let's say iPhone. Not many people throw an iPhone away. Why not? Because iPhone is one of those things that uh, has its own community, right? People talk about buying into the ecosystem. It's about being in the club. It's highly valued, so that people would sell it. Or you know, if if it's sim free, as in not tied to say A and T, they'll they'll talk they'll sell it. Or they'll give it to their family members. So iPhones don't tend to get thrown away until they really are, you know, something that they can't use. And so that's what I would say to people. Like when you think about env- the environment, think about who you are, how you can save your money, what it means to you. And then when we understand that, we're more likely to be able to look at it in a more holistic manner. Right? When people say, the activists like, save the environment. I'm like, you need to understand that you have your reasons for doing that. And I get it might be partly linked to luxury beliefs for Henderson's ideas or it might be because your parents did it, you know, but maybe the people you're trying to reach need their own reasons. And maybe you should listen to what their reasons might be because they tend to assume that we should all have the same reasons for wanting to save the planet. And eventually we might, <laughs> but it takes time. You know, I don't know if just what does that make sense to you? It does. But let me ask in the way of, reasons and then to maybe we can bring in some ancient philosophy and and things like that of like you mentioned asking one of your your students you know how to change the world consume less things is is a very good way um to do so but it can be very difficult like this idea stoicism of training our desires and aversions which shows up in 
I think most wisdom traditions of, you know, how do you overcome these desires? Like the virtue of temperance can be very difficult depending mm-hmm. on, you know, who it is and and what the item is. You know, what can we learn from ancient philosophy to to actually like put that into practice and and manage our desires? It depends on what philosophy is the first answer. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, if if I took like if I took say Christianity. Right, and, I, and again, I think Christianity, in its purest form, is about character. It's about recognizing that God, as the Creator, created the world. And I wouldn't say in Christianity that God is wasteful. I wouldn't say that Jesus is wasteful. I think within that tradition, whether we believe it or not, but let's go for it a minute. I think He, Jesus, weighs His words. He's very careful. He's very considerate. He's very direct. He's very. I don't think he will say he's also often meek and mild. That's not my view of Jesus in the temple, for example. So, if we're Christian, can we imagine Jesus wasting things? I mean, he was forty days in the desert being tempted, right? And he was told he didn't have to die, which was going to ruin the covenant, wasn't it? That you know that his flesh was what sealed the opportunity for humans to have a relationship with God again. But we'd also know that in his humanness, if we go with the tradition, he's asking like, you know, why have you forsaken me? So if we're Christians, would we say that Jesus Christ promotes a world where we don't care about his very creation? That we don't care about the time that God God took, if we believe in seven, six days of creation rest or millions of years are we saying that that's not valid because when we destroy a tree that god created if we're going with that tradition that says something about us and that's disconnect because people say that god says you know we should proliferate and enjoy enjoy the world with the caveat that he also said we should be stewards enjoyment in christianity isn't hedonism it's not enjoy it to the max with no consideration for what god has given us again using the christian example so when christians say to me and they often do oh but god gave us the world yes but he was very careful he said you're my stewards you are i have chosen you you know with the the tribe he chose a particular tribe to take his message and they had lots of restrictions they actually had 613 mikveh 613 rules about what was allowed and what wasn't. And then when Jesus comes, he says, I have come to fulfill the law, not abolish the law. So if he's come to fulfill the law, it doesn't make sense then as a Christian to go, hang on a minute, I should be wasteful, I should wear clothing once. If I cut down a tree, God's just going to put another one because you're going to have the answers of God. Like God's like, I've created a beautiful tree outside and you cut it down because you didn't want, you know, bird muck on your car. (laughs) That was your concern that you have to clear bird muck off your windscreen so you cut one of my beautiful trees down and people don't think about it like that. So I would say within that particular tradition, you know, Christians aren't wasteful. If we look at Apostle Paul, for example, you know, even when he's not on his like walks talking about the Lord, he's making tents. You know, he's walking around, you know, in very simple clothing. Uh, you know, they all walked around in sandals if they had enough money. He's doing that. He's not. He was very powerful. He's a Roman. He says that. He says, you can't treat me like that. I'm a Roman. And yet he didn't have the frivolous attitude of, of Romans. In fact, it's Seneca's brother that actually is involved in his, uh, in his um, judgment when he gets 
told off. So we know that Seneca, despite being a Stoic, is very frivolous <laughs> with, with his money and with his resources. We also know there's a direct connection between Seneca's brother and Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul would be more like what I would call um, humble in his Roman uh, attitude. For him, he's calling to firstly listen to God uh, as, uh, as, a, as in the Hebrew tradition and then when the scales fall from his eyes to defend Jesus. But he was Roman and he could have took advantage of that Roman culture, which was particularly in his circles. He's not a poor Roman. He's not a slave because you have people forget who Paul could have been and chose not to be. Whether people believe that Paul actually existed or not, for me, there's no reason to doubt the historical figure. So that's a really good example. In the Stoic tradition, we know that um, what we wear can be a preferred or dispreferred indifference. If it's always preferred, it would be a virtue. Clothing is not a virtue. So there's sometimes like people might say to me, you know, but you know, then you're saying, for example, in this particular club that you agree with the Saudi ownership and that's that's vicious. And so it actually depends on why I wore it. I didn't buy it thinking about the Saudi owners or the Saudi owners of the club. I wanted to mix in with the in, you know, with the the builders, with the people that I was walking the street with. And I, I thought of it that way. My reasons are to to integrate. So you know we think about the stoics. So they'll say clothing isn't indifferent. But there's no way in Stoicism that we should be excessive. There's nothing into Christianity. And in fact in Islam it's about not being excessive. In fact Prophet Hamid uh, peace be upon him in that tradition is very strict about not being wasteful but stoics like you know why would one be wasteful wasteful is a lack of temperance we know that wasteful which means using something inappropriately by definition or not using it at all when it could be used because if it if you could use it it wouldn't be waste would it so we know that that is vicious because it's inappropriate it's unwise or lack of self-control so the stoics are very clear that we do not need to do anything in, in excess that's why I also said if we're screaming and banning people from getting an ambulance from point A to point B in an environmental quote unquote protest, I don't think I think that's quite excessive, right? I think there are better ways to raise att- attention. So it's a case of like what is excessive, and I think we can all know it. And Epictetus says like you know if a shoe is to protect the foot, then we do have a sensible limit as to what a shoe should look like. He literally does talk about shoes, but if the <laughs> purpose of a shoe is to look lovely. Right, which says to look lovely. Well, I'm paraphrasing, but it's to look dan- you know dandy, to look lovely. Then there's no logical limit as to what a shoe should look like. So Stoics even talk about shoes, like they literally do that. And uh, you know, Masonius Rufus talked about you know simplicity and functionality. Now I don't want to be Soviet functional, right? The Stoics are very keen on beauty, but there's parts you know it's appropriate to go. Well, I do need a beautiful shoe. Like I don't want an ugly looking shoe. But everybody can look at a shoe and go, that looks ugly, right? We tend to, as human beings, know that something's ugly. Like, no one has to really tell us. We go, oh, that's, that's an ugly-looking building. <laughs> that's an ugly-looking shoe. But we don't have to be frivolous in how we do things, right? And if we were to be frivolous, like maybe a church, churches are the buildings that tend to last the longest time. We've got churches in the UK uh, thousands of years old. And again, if we're going to be frivolous with it, we've got to be like, well, this has to last for a long time, right? So questioning why we do things, why we have it, why do I have those clothes, why do I feel the need to identify in a certain way, why do I feel the need to have extras? And until we know those questions, I don't think we can do anything for the environment because we're not even considering who we are in relation to the environment. Yeah, great questions. Bringing up Seneca, I don't know, as you were 
talking there and reading through um, some of these articles. It's lovely to see some of these passages from the Stoics, you know, 2,000, 2000 years ago on, on these issues. But something that I think is not easy to understand, and I wouldn't say I completely understand it, is when Seneca talks about adopt a single rule to live by. But it seems the, you know, in my own experience, like temperance, for example, it seems to be easier to actually do and carry out in daily life when it applies to all aspects of your life. Mm. Where sometimes we can do this pick and choosy thing of where it's like, <laughs> I'll be temperate, you know, here and there, but then maybe excessive in the way of consumption and things like that. Where if it was something where it was just a blanket thing that you kept in mind with everything that you did, seems to be much easier. I mean, the Stoics were clear. We misunderstand in the contemporary circles. We say things like you you can be courageous, right? But courage for the Stoics might be to do nothing. So you can't, being is a doing verb, right? So when they say courageous, they're talking about a character a shape, a tone. They actually talk about a tone. So we can use it like when you play guitar, it either sounds good or it doesn't. So if you're, say, you think you're being being temperate in one aspect of your life and then you're not being temperate in another aspect of your life, the Stoics would say you're not temperate because your character has to carry through. This is why the Stoics don't talk about being something, but they're saying, I mean, I know Marcus Aurelius does, but he's actually not a philosopher. So they're like, well, he, he says this. Like, yes, but he wasn't the, the philosopher. If you go to the philosophers, they don't talk about that. He was a practitioner, but not a philosopher, like Metonius Rufus was. So it's about cultivating a character. Now, a character is something that you carry through, right? So if we imagine like a, a character, a person who's a bodybuilder, right? So I'm thinking about sort of physical, their physical features. They're strong everywhere they go. They're not just strong like physically in one when they lift one thing and then when they lift another thing, they're suddenly weak. So that's like that's part of their physical structure. But the characters are part of your moral fiber. We actually do have this expression, like our moral fiber. And so for the Stoics, like you either have a very sort of strong moral fiber which case you have, if you're a sage, you have a perfectly good moral fiber, or you don't. So if we think in terms of character, we would say then, if I, you said I was a generous person and you saw me being stingy and you thought that was unusual, you'd say you're acting out of character. Right? You're out of character. Something strange is going on. Is he all right? <laughs> so it's not about thinking about what we could do, because then we do get that sort of, well, here I'll be a bit, temp you know, what it looks like temperate. I'll be a bit more self-controlled than my normal self. Well, then your normal self isn't self-controlled, right? So it's not about picking and choosing the acts that we want to do. It's about cultivating a character where regardless of where we are, we'll do the right thing, right? That's what the Stoics would say. If you, if you think about it, if you're an English language speaker and that's the only language you speak, regardless of which country you're going to speak English. And that's, what, that's the kind of idea. Like, if you're interested in cultivating a virtuous character, and I've just written a paper, it's not out yet, about the Catholic virtues in the state, but you say you can be Christian and still think the same thing, then it doesn't matter what's put in front of you. You're going to try to the best of your ability to do that in an appropriate manner. The same way if you're never going to cheat on your wife, it doesn't matter how many women or men get put in front of you, you're not doing that. That's part of your character. You would never do that. So this is the, the issue I have with like a contemporary 
uh, non-academic understanding of stoicism it's like i should be courageous here but then he's not courageous there no it's like you either are or you aren't in the same way like if you're in america you're in america and if you're in canada you might be near america but you're not there so you are it's very stoicism is really black and white really so if we talk about acts, we'll say appropriate acts or inappropriate acts rather than courageous acts, because only the perfectly moral soul, because it doesn't lose a soul, can, can be courageous because it means that they would do that every time. Not because of a particular circumstance, but because of what they physically are, right? That's why they, they talk about, uh, Chrysippus talks about the cylinder, that it will, it will roll for two reasons. One, it's a cylinder. If it was a brick, it wouldn't roll. It might tumble, but it wouldn't roll. The other thing is that it will roll if it's put on a slope. So there are circumstances that we will be challenged, right? But if we say, like I said, I would be challenged in China. It's a very hard place to live. I have lived there, didn't speak the language. And I spoke the language I, I, I spoke. So we think of it like that. If whatever we did, we spoke English in a particular country, makes sense if we only speak English, that would happen. And if we try to think about our moral sense of self then we won't then be restricted to or here on a saturday night i'm not exactly the most moral creature going and then you say well then you're not a moral creature because you don't value all the effort and work you've put in and the body would say the same thing like you can have your cheat day but if your cheat days are more than your clean days then are you really a bodybuilder or you're just a person who goes to a gym it's that kind of thing does that make sense joshua it does uh... Uh, it does to a certain extent, I guess. Maybe if you could connect the dots, how does that connect with sustainability? You know, and having a sustainable mindset. I think it could be helpful. Yeah. So if you ha- if you're having a sustainable mindset, you're con- let's say t- we we'll talk about waste because it's quite steep, probably. Then I won't be wasteful with my food. I won't buy excessive amounts of food. I will be careful about what I put on my plate. I will be careful about how, what I. What I dress, how I dress. I would be careful in how I approach um, people who disagree with me about the environmental challenges being important, right? Because I think that's part of the part of the challenge with environmentalism. Part of my frustration is that I think we're too absolutist in our approach. Like everyone should do this, and this is this is terrible because I think, like, um, who are we to think in the UK that somebody in Ghana has exactly the same circumstances as us and should do exactly the same thing? Who are we to say that older people are bad and younger people are good? I mean, there's many examples. I won't name the person, but she does say like, oh, it's you older people that are irresponsible. Well, there are older people that are poor that have never got on a plane in their lives and they're young people that have gone to Disneyland from Europe many, many a time. So if I am careful in my decisions around food, I should be careful with my careful character in my decisions around clothes. I should be careful in how I approach the subject. Like I said, if you want people to be vegetarian for a day, buy them vegetarian food. You don't have to scream at them. Where's the, where's the temperance in that? I would be careful in how I use my car if I have a car. I'll be careful in my decisions about what car I buy or what I don't buy or how often I use it or if I get a car share. I would be careful in, to use the American word, vacation that I pick, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't fly because maybe my family is very far away and, you know, I need to see them. But if my sort of leisure holidays or vacations, I would be very careful about what I pick, about what kind of food I eat and and how many miles I travel and my attitude to people when I'm there, right? Because wherever you go, you're there. So that would be an example. So in all my life, if if I'm considered to be a careful character, 
from a cautious character, that's not someone overly cautious, not what I mean, just, just careful, then that would echo in my entire life. It might even echo in how I choose to look after uh, my children because people, for example, say to me, oh, it's the population. Unless you think seven people from rural India have a greater impact than your two kids with their Xbox, their PlayStation 5, they're, they're all there, their piano lessons, their guitar lessons, their American football. Um, you think they have a less impact on the world than the five people who are helping their mum collect rice? Right? So just highlighting again to be careful. And I've also asked my students long and they say, I said, how of you here don't have a car for environmental reasons? And some people have put up their hand. I said, how many of you here don't have a washing machine for environmental reasons? And no one's put up their hand so far. But that takes energy. You can wash by hand. If you were concerned about the energy, you might say, well, I wash by washing machine because it's more efficient in terms of water. But if I'm talking about carbon emissions and I'm restricting it to that, then we have to consider those impacts. So whatever, you know, whatever decisions I would make, Throughout the board, you know, across the board, I would be careful in that. And I would be careful as well not to judge a person. So if they have happened to have a SUV, for example, why suddenly jumps down their throat? Maybe they have an SUV because they live in a rural place and they pick up loads of kids and they take loads of people to church, you know, and they go to church on Wednesday and Sunday and they have five people. And if they didn't have that at a smaller car, then five different people would have their own car. They're like, no, I have this big car because I love picking people up and taking them to church. And so instead of just, for example, recently people were literally taking out, I don't know if you saw this, Joshua, taking air out of SUV tyres, if you saw that on the news, they literally no, decided to no, do I that. I mean, how did they know that that person didn't need to go to the hospital or take their mum to the hospital? You know, he's saying, okay, let's see about why they have an SUV, how efficiently they use it, why they use it, is it necessary? And that's a far more interesting conversation than saying that everyone has an SUV should have their tyres like uh, sort you know messed up or uh, I think I think actually cut them or they just I think they actually just released the air and I think well that's a very inconsiderate and unnuanced thing to do it's very absolutist isn't it again and again if you're being absolutist you're not being careful let me ask you in in reference to people like myself and and maybe many people listening that are not necessarily as their work writing research papers about sustainability and and maybe it's not um so much on the mind you know how would you recommend that we're a bit more careful and a bit more mindful uh, about the idea of sustainability that's a really hard question i think yeah. i think we've had that issue for the last 25 years I tend to encourage people to pick one thing that they'd like to improve, right? If you, again, the absolutist approach of no one should ever do this and no one should ever do that isn't necessarily helpful. So I tend to say things like, do you have a pot plant in your house? Like something simple. Do you have a pot plant? Do you, do you water a pot plant in your kitchen? And a lot of people will say to me, no. I'm like, you know how you can improve the environment in your own house? Yeah, cactus. <laughs> Water cactus, you know. It's already here. You're not importing it especially. It's already in your in, in the UK. I mean, you have oh, always a cactus. Well, it's probably produced in the UK. Like, you know, buy it, you know, get a tree and plant a tree in your garden and enjoy it. And teach your children, I think the key thing is teach your children to look after plants. They look, you know, we need to water them, we need to make sure they get when they get slightly bigger, we get we get a pot for them. And I think like passing that knowledge on to the next generation is something that is, is wonderful. So I tend to say to people, 
if you haven't got a garden, buy some pot plants and get your kids to look after them and explain to them, well, they actually, you know, we need them. Because there's been shown that we could actually reduce that two degree average temperature increase by planting enough trees. But we don't want to plant trees in the world because that's not innovation. And we have this reality that innovation is good and like people like, you know, Bill Gates can solve it for us. Literally, we just need to plant enough trees. And we'd solve it ourselves, but there's no money in planting trees. So there you go. So I tend to say to people, plant a tree, get a pot plant. You know, look, you know, if you if you see a dog or a cat that needs, you know, care, look after them. They're here. Look, do something. Like you see people say, Oh, you know, if I help that cat, we're just encouraging cats. Well, well, you're helping one cat. I mean, you can't stop cats populating the world that you don't want when you don't want them to populate unless you want to involve yourself in the charity, but you can do that. Um, look after your family and take them out. A lot, of, a lot of children today, particularly in the urban West, they don't know that you know milk comes from cows. Take, take the kids out, go on a nature walk. Even if you have to drive there, say, look, you know, this is the wilderness and this is important. This is something that we value. Um, you know, talk to them about the fact we're losing bees because we're not considering them either. So I think there's just keep it simple. Do something. It's better to do something that you can continue doing for the next twenty years than try to do everything and then in a week. Get, I mean, I'm, I know academics who are actually uh, depressed because they feel that they can't do anything. Right? And I'm like, well, anxiety for the Stoics is a mindset. Like, of course, you can get clinical depression. So I'm not talking about chemical imbalances in the brain. But if you're if you haven't got those particular levels of anxiety, then it's a mindset. Being anxious about the world isn't going to change you isn't going to improve it. And a lot of young people have have really got strong levels of anxiety because they think that the world is going to die, basically, and humans are going to die on it. It's like, but you could just get a pot plant. You could just look after your dog a bit better. You, you could walk to school instead of getting the bus, if that's appropriate. You could encourage people, you know, go out and draw a picture of nature and appreciate it. Right, so, so I would say the most simplest thing that you can do, and that you can do for the next twenty years, and I, I think most people could have a pop alarm, for example. And it sounds silly, but or you know, I've I myself have recently decided to you know, I've moved and like make a beautiful garden. And I was like, it's not an amazing, it didn't cost a lot of money. But I thought I want to look out in that garden and see, you know, something beautiful and something sacred. You know, if if, if say God is sacred, of, the, of you know, nature is God. I want to see that, or if God, you know, the Christian God, for example, then, you know, help along God's creation. And it's something like that. I don't think, Joshua, that we have to do loads of very difficult things. Um, mm. You know, I've been very much more careful about what food I eat. As you know, I've decided that I will generally have a vegetarian diet unless, I think I've said before, my mum slaves over a roast dinner twice a year. I will eat that out of appreciation for her. If I'm in a Pacific island, I will eat what they eat. So it's just, just thinking, like, what can I do that doesn't really cost a lot of effort and time to improve something? Because once you do that, changes, I've noticed that when people have took my advice of getting a pot plant, they tend to get more than one eventually. So, <laughs> so it's like, you know, how do I build that? Of course, you can also, you know, you can do bigger things if you would like to. I tend to encourage people, at, you know, in churches and mosques and say, you know, why don't you encourage the community to do a community thing? Like, you know, your church... You know, a lot of churchyards or don't have the nicest gardens. I'm like, surely it's not just your building that should look nice. So there are there are groups out there that are making their church grounds nicer. 
So I would encourage you, if you are a church goer, a mosque goer, or a temple goer, if your building looks beautiful, but you don't have a nice garden outside, and that's, you know, for me, when people look at your church, they're looking at your garden, if it's full of weeds, what does that say? So mm. it's those kind of things. I don't know, Joshua, if that's what you had in mind, but I think that that's simple. Yeah, I love it. I love the idea of, of keeping it simple. And something you mentioned there, mentioned there about the next generation, um, I think the first time we spoke was probably a year and a half ago or, or something like More that. More than that. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. But I remember you talking about growing up and going through school that each year the mascot for that particular grade was a tree. It was, yeah. And uh, how that stuck with you, and you kind of remembered the idea of uh, having your hands in the in the soil. I and, do. You know, there yeah. was a bit of education there. I've told a few people that story. I think that's that's really cool. But it's an example about this: the next generation. Once we're um, like so many things, once we're it's brought to our attention, and we have a greater awareness of it, it just changes you know, the decisions that we make and, and, and things like that. For me, it changed everything. Like having yeah. that simple example of labeling our class and having a mascot that was literally a tree, it changed everything. Mm. It's simple. I am pretty sure that if my numbers would have, it would have been class one, two, three, four, I would never, I don't think I would have been environmentalist. Mm. Because yeah. they would never, it's what we don't see. Like I often ask people, don't just focus on what you see. You want to change something in your life, you know, your job you know, your hobby, look at what you're not, think about what you're not looking at very often. And that's actually really hard to do as part of like yeah. zooming out. So by not looking at that, I would have missed out. So if people say, okay, what, how do I know what I'm not looking at? Well, consider what have I not seen recently? For example, have you been, you know, have you been to a garden recently? Like, have you planted, have you ever planted a tree? A lot of people have never done that. And I think that's yeah. very sad, you know, <laughs> they've never done that. Have you, or have you ever planted a flower? I've, I've spoken to people, they've never done that. You know, have you ever kneeled down in the dirt and like seen how you, you know, your strawberries are growing? I've never done that. It's like, if you've never done that, that's something you've never seen. And like, yeah. you could die tomorrow and you've never planted a tree or you've never planted a flower or you've never, you know, for example, you may never have gone to a farm. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I think that would make the difference to say, I've never done that. Why didn't I just do it? And most people actually, they like planting trees and they go back to that tree. So they tend to to do that. And then the thought of that tree getting cut down is actually, again, goes back to, now it's your tree, right? It's not just yeah. any tree. The same as a dog. If you, I think we've discussed that before. If you name a dog in an um, sh- animal shelter, it's less likely to die. Because people are like, we can't let Bob die. Whereas if it's a dog that hasn't been named by the shelter, because they may not know the actual name, what the name was given to the dog, that dog is, you know, in terms of probability, is more likely to be uh, put down, to say it like that. So that's that's the key thing, like seeing what we're seeing, reflecting what we're not seeing, and asking, I think children actually know a lot more than we give them credit for, and asking them, well, what would you like to do? Would you like to go and pick strawberries or something? I know the US is very difficult, and if you live in Los Angeles, that's quite challenging. So I'm not suggesting that it's easy, but you do have like the observatory, the Lawrence Observatory, go for a walk there. So yeah. even if you live in LA, you can do that. So, you know, get out there and, and see, see what the world has given you and what you haven't taken up on the offer yet. Well, I greatly appreciate your time and, and sharing your wisdom with us, Guy. Would you mind um, 
you know, sharing briefly where where listeners might be able to learn more about you and your work in the world? Yeah, I would say that they they can it depends on what they like to do, but I'm at Kai Whiting on Twitter. Um, I'm part of the Wall Garden community, which I know that you'll be sharing more information about that shortly. Um, I yeah, I would say the best thing to do if you want to email me and ask me any specific questions or you want a copy of any of that material that we were talking about, a paper on stoves and the food, a paper on stoves and the clothing, you can go on stokekai.com and contact me directly. And uh, I might as well tell people that I am a mentor now because people ask me, like, how do I use stoicism to do practical things? And I, and I decided that I should mentor people and I do have spaces for mentees. So if you want to use stoicism, like, for example, somebody had some issues with their parents, so I said about the stoic approach to that. So I said, if you like shout at your, your parents or, or the, particularly their mum, then she's probably not going to respond in the way that you want unless you want just to shout at her and then you've achieved your goal. If you want to improve things with your mum, you have to approach it a different way. I help people uh, negotiate a work contract because they wanted to earn a bit more money, but they wanted to do it in a stoic way. So I think that stoicism is a very practical, uh, practical philosophy and I'm happy to offer that service because I think that we can go so far, we can go, go very academic or we can go very sort of self-helpy and then we don't really go, but okay, I feel better, I'm having a cold shower, for example, but how does that then link to, you know, having a better work-life balance, better uh, relationship with my family? So if you're interested in that, uh, I would say please email Joshua directly uh, as he will then pass on uh, contact and it's, it's easier for us to both coordinate if that happens. So if you're interested in mentoring just with me, ask Joshua directly and we'll get in touch. And if you, as I said, if you'd like any of those papers, either, or I think Joshua has them as well, so either email him or email me. And thank you so much for listening. And if you've got pictures of your pot plants, send me a picture. I really, I would love it. It would be great. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we'll love it. We'll link everything mentioned in the notes so it's uh, easy to find. Kai Whiting, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. 